Hi there, I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week, designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of October 16th, 2023. When Governor Katie Hobbs took office at the start of the year, she announced plans for a new state agency for energy and sustainability programs. That office is still getting set up. But as KJZZ's Catherine Davis-Young reports, important deadlines are quickly approaching for federal funding for climate change programs. The governor's Office of Resiliency doesn't have a working website yet. Some of its jobs haven't been filled, and there was no sign on the door when I recently visited the office at the Arizona Capitol. So we've been up and running since, you know, about the end of February. Marin Mahoney was appointed by Governor Hobbs to direct this new office. Mahoney has a law degree, a master's in sustainability, and she was an energy policy advisor for the Arizona Corporation Commission, which regulates most of the state's utilities. She has broad marching orders from the governor as an overseer of energy, water, land use, and transportation programs. But when asked what her priorities are, Mahoney said she's still sorting that out. We don't have like a list of priority projects. Before Mahoney Mahoney's appointment, Arizona was one of just a few states without an agency for energy programs. That wasn't always the case. Arizona used to have a state energy office, but then Governor Doug Ducey closed it in 2015 in an effort to downsize state government. Mahoney says that left a void. I think what we've been missing out on is a more coherent statewide coordinating leadership position on energy. Before Ducey closed it, the office for decades had worked to bring federal investments for utility projects to the state. It also ran audits for cities looking to improve energy efficiency. Amanda Ormond served as director of Arizona's energy office from the mid-90s until 2001. We had a, a state energy plan that we did every few years that that looked at affordability, accessibility, and and making sure we had enough energy for the future. Ormond, who now works as an energy consultant, says Arizona's new resiliency office is launching at a critical time when renewable energy technology is seeing major advancements. The amount of change in the electric industry I haven't seen in my 30 years working in the industry. Arizona still gets more than half of its power from fossil fuels. Ormond points out the state's population is growing quickly and utilities need to provide more power. She says energy efficiency upgrades and new solar infrastructure are the cheapest ways to meet increasing demand. But she says those changes will take statewide planning and federal funding. To me, that's one of the key things that they should be working on initially is trying to secure as much of that federal money as we can for all kinds of different energy-related projects. And there's never been more federal money available to states for these efforts than there is right now. President Biden's Inflation Reduction Act, passed in 2022, is offering $4.6 billion to states, cities, and tribes through a new competitive grant program to fund climate pollution reduction strategies. Sandy Barr with the Sierra Club Grand Canyon chapter wants to see the state's new resiliency office aggressively pursue that funding. You know, we don't want to miss out on things because we missed 
uh, deadline. The Resiliency Office has already been awarded a grant for planning climate solutions, but to access the largest chunk of funding to implement new projects, the state will need to submit a climate action plan to the EPA by early 2024. Right now, Arizona doesn't have a climate plan. The state attempted to make one in 2006, but came up against major political roadblocks, particularly in the GOP-controlled state legislature. Barr was on the advisory group that drafted the plan. She says they put forward 49 recommendations. Some of which required legislation, and the ones that required legislation didn't happen at all. Barr expects the current, deeply divided state lawmakers wouldn't be any more likely to pass major climate legislation. But she says she's pleased the new resiliency office is getting established. Barr thinks it may be able to plan out programs for fuel-efficient government fleets or consumer incentives for rooftop solar. Still, with no state climate plan and an energy office that's been mothballed for eight years, there's no doubt that Arizona's behind. Mahoney says the office will be up to the challenge, but Barr says Arizona has a lot of work to do. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. In part one of this series, you heard how buffalo were nearly driven to extinction in North America in the late 1800s due to hide hunting and a brutal campaign to starve and displace indigenous tribes. More than a century later, authorities are struggling to control the herd's population. And as Gabriel Pietrazio reports, they're turning to tribes to help sustainably manage the herd on the north rim of the Grand Canyon. Drivers from a pair of pickup trucks briefly parked to move construction cones blocking off a service road inside Grand Canyon National Park, near the border of the Kaibab National Forest. They were checking an enclosed pen on that Saturday morning in early September, and sure enough, two mature buffalo bulls were successfully baited. But they're very hard to transport because they hurt themselves and our other bison, and we have an agreement with Arizona that we would not ship those large bulls because those are desirable for people that have, you know, the bull tags for hunting. Greg Holm runs the National Park Service's Wildlife Biology Program. And when I trekked up there that weekend, it was this season's last chance to capture them in partnership with the Intertribal Buffalo Council, or ITBC, a collection of more than 80 tribes across 20 states that steward the species on their homelands. Bison are ultimate survivors, whether it is extremes of heat or cold, they're adapted to both. That's Dennis Horgensen. He's the bison program manager for the Northern Great Plains at the World Wildlife Fund. That fact that bison thrive, you do always have to think about how you're going to manage a surplus. Authorities say that area where the Arizona herd roams can accommodate only around 200 buffalo, but in recent years, the count has surpassed 600. That herd has been spending the majority of time in Grand Canyon, oh, I'd say for at least a couple of decades. Rob Nelson is the terrestrial wildlife manager at the Arizona Game and Fish Department. There's no hunting or any other kind of population check in the park. He says 247 buffalo have been killed during seasonal public hunts between 2018 and 2022, but... Hunting alone is not going to be the only tool to solve this population explosion problem. National Park Service Tribal Program Manager Mike Linden has an answer. Live transfer is and always has been our preferred management tool. It's one of three sustainable methods, two of which are tribal programs, that the National Park Service utilizes today. Essentially, we're right around 300 
bison after our last count. Holmes says the National Park Service worked with tribes, the state, and other federal agencies to finalize a science-based management plan in 2017. Their goal is to reduce the herd size by 2025. So there's some wiggle room there. If we get under 200, it's not a big deal, but that's kind of what we're shooting for. For the first time in five years, due to staffing and weather issues, none will be shipped off. But 182 buffalo have been hauled by ITBC from Arizona since 2019. They are really superb partners for us. From providing technical and cultural expertise to transporting buffalo from the remote North Rim. And do that safely is a big deal. I just don't know how else we would have a live transfer program. These animals have been relocated to at least eight tribes in South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, and Oklahoma. Today, ITBC members manage more than 20,000 buffalo throughout Indian country. With that overarching purpose being restoring buffalo for that cultural and spiritual connection to those communities. Troy Heiner is the executive director of ITBC. Everything we do is connected to that vision and that mission. Arizona's buffalo are feeding and healing indigenous communities out on the Great Plains, whose centuries-long connections with these animals, likened to kin and relatives, had been severed. What we're trying to do is recreate this tribal buffalo economy while being able to use the entire animal like we once did, being able to distribute that meat to our membership, as well as the other parts of the buffalo that have ceremonial meaning to us. And Linden has been also trying to bring that opportunity to 11 traditionally associated tribes of the Grand Canyon through lethal culling, which, unlike traditional hunting, is considered a management strategy, not sport. So far, five tribes have signed on to that agreement that basically says, yes, we'd like to partner with the Park Service on these operations. The pilot tribal culling operation was supposed to happen in the fall, following the conclusion of ITBC's live capture, until... Well, you do know, because you were up on the North Rim, the bison did not cooperate. Unlike live capture, Linden says lethal culling may be used sparingly going forward, if at all. But if we do, we see local tribes being a big part of that management process. For KJZZ News, I'm Gabriel Pietrazio, reporting from the North Rim of the Grand Canyon. Find part one of this series on our website, kjzz.org. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In business news, gas prices have remained high in Arizona, even as prices drop nationwide. Here's Mark Brody. State lawmakers could be looking to make changes to the type of fuel Valley drivers have to use to gas up their vehicles. And the high prices faced by Phoenix-area drivers earlier this year seems to be the impetus. A legislative committee will hear testimony on the issue later today. And joining me now to talk about the issue is Ryan Randazzo of the Arizona Republic, who's reported on this. Good morning, Ryan. Morning. So what is the, the type, what, like what's different about the type of gasoline that happens, that is delivered to Phoenix as opposed to anywhere else in the state? So because the Phoenix area has kind of worse air pollution than other parts of the country, we have stricter requirements from the Clean Air Act on the type of gas. And this gets incredibly wonky and complicated, but there's certain types of air pollution that happen in winter and certain types that are more common in summer. And our fuel is blended specifically to to mitigate that air pollution seasonally. And back in the 90s, uh, our state lawmakers decided that they could um, take an extra step and use a unique blend 
um, to, to really fight air pollution in the region. But that has sort of come back to bite the area. We've got a huge population now, and it's hard to get that type of fuel if the, if the few refiners that make it um, have to shut down for service. And that is apparently what happened earlier this year when many of us were paying five bucks or more per gallon at the pump. Yeah. Earlier this year, we had just an unprecedented price spike. And, you know, prices have been very wonky since the COVID pandemic. Um, But what happened here did not happen in neighboring states that used a more readily available fuel blend. So we had two refineries to the east of us in New Mexico and Texas that went down for service. They warned the state that this could cause a supply problem, and it did. Um, We get about half our fuel from a pipeline coming in from the east and about half uh, from a pipeline coming in from the west. Mm -hmm. There's other refiners in California that could make this, but there wasn't enough capacity to get fuel here. And so we saw prices, you know, and this is unfortunate for radio because it's kind of a visual thing. But if you look at the price chart, our gas price in Phoenix was tracking right along the national average in March. And then it just shot up when the national average did not. The Colorado average, the Nevada average, the Utah and even Los Angeles were never higher than Los Angeles. And our prices here in Phoenix were higher than L.A., San Francisco, San Diego for several weeks. Well, so there are obviously other places around the country, other metro areas that have air quality problems like Phoenix does. Is it possible for us to just do what they're doing instead of having this separate, unique blend? It appears that would be the the common sense answer. And as a matter of fact, that was proposed back in 2020 at the legislature. State officials who are in charge of our fuel blends testified at the legislature saying this would be a good idea. It could prevent a price spike if we had a refinery outage, which we saw later. Um, And they said, importantly, that doing so would not uh, increase air pollution, Mm. that there are new fuel blends developed since the 90s when we put our requirements in place that we could use, that refiners could make and um, not have a unique blend here, and we would not see an increase in air pollution. Of course, the COVID pandemic cut short the legislative session then, and that bill has not been brought back up. But today, lawmakers are going to discuss it because, uh, you know, the Phoenix area was it had a huge economic hit this spring from the high gas prices. So does it seem as though lawmakers are kind of going back to what they were on, maybe on the path to doing in, in 2020, just a few years later now? Yeah, I mean, they're picking it up now because they saw how much economic harm can actually occur to, to our area. Because when gas prices go up a dollar a gallon, Arizona, people in the Phoenix area buy four and a half to five million gallons a day. So that's wow. five million dollars that they don't have to spend on groceries, clothes, a new car, a, you know, a mortgage payment. I mean, it is a huge economic um, hit to that region. So what are you hearing from lawmakers about what they think they might be hearing later today and how that might translate into potential action once the session starts in January? Well, kind of amazing and rare. I am hearing that there's bipartisan support to wow. do this, um, that um, that so far no one has come out against this. Um, it's it's being proposed by Republicans, um, but, but we'll see. As you know, sometimes things down at the Capitol devolve into theatrics and you know, with gas prices, it's such a volatile issue. Everyone wants to blame the other party. Everyone wants to blame the oil companies. Um, so uh, I, fingers crossed that they can actually solve this problem and, and not uh, just wind up in some sort of name-calling debate. Yeah. So at the risk of devolving into a supremely wonky conversation, what would be different or what is different about some of the other types of gasolines than this blend that that we've been having here so far? So the difference in gas blends comes down to like the one or two percent of the gasoline that is um, 
like butane or how much sulfur content and and the volatility of that gas. So if you uh, have the gasoline, at what temperature does it evaporate and and just go straight into the air and contribute to pollution? So um, the different standards are set so that your car runs more efficiently in the different seasons and so that the gas itself doesn't contribute to to ground level ozone and smog and the brown cloud like we have hanging yeah. over the city of Phoenix this morning. So uh, it would not be something noticeable to drivers. I mean, Phoenix drivers go to other states and fill up with gasoline. As a matter of fact, you go to places uh, like Flagstaff mm-hmm. or, or Yuma that are not a part of this uh Phoenix area fuel plan, and you can buy these other reformulated gasolines. And it's all considerably less expensive than it is here too. Right. That was one of the striking things about the the price increase this spring is that you paid all this huge price in the city of Phoenix, but you could go to rural areas right outside of Phoenix that weren't a part of our our same fuel requirement, and the spike did not affect them. So it seems like, as you say, this has bipartisan support, not a ton of opposition, not to, you know, be a Debbie Downer here, but like, are there potential roadblocks for this actually going into effect? Like, could could the oil companies, could producers, could refiners, could somebody come out between now and, let's say, January and say, well, maybe not. This is not such a great idea. Sure. T- tons of pitfalls. Uh, in 2020, two refining companies did oppose that bill, but I am hearing that they are not opposed to the idea now. Of course, the legislature is not in session, so right. they're going to talk about this today. Uh, we'll see if they come to an agreement, but they won't be able to do anything until they uh, start up again in January. They need to get uh, you know support of of the ninety lawmakers down there, a signature by the governor. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of unity between uh, the Republican legislature and the Democrat governor, and then they need to get the EPA to approve. But according to the testimony given in twenty twenty, this would not increase air pollution. It wouldn't you know it wouldn't uh, cause us to backslide. And if that's the case, then the EPA should sign off on it. But there's sort of a long road to go before this would take effect. And I guess Phoenix area drivers just have to hope that they don't see another refinery outage that shoots prices up another dollar a gallon. Absolutely. All right. That is Ryan Randazzo of the Arizona Republic. Ryan, thanks as always for coming in. Thank you. In science news. In the coming years, NASA will give the James Webb and Hubble Space Telescopes another flagship team member to study the cosmos. And as Greg Haney reports, NASA has chosen a research group at the Arizona Cosmology Lab at the U of A to manage two teams of the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. One team will cover wide field science and another project infrastructure. While the telescope has a mirror that is comparable to the size of Hubble's, it is able to take images up to 100 times larger. That is important because a major goal of the Roman telescope is to build a map of the night sky. In order to do so, it will use new measurement ideas called kinematic lensing that can account for the distortions of light due to gravitational fields. U of A professor Tim Eifler managing the project infrastructure team says doing so will help provide understanding of dark energy and dark matter. Figuring out what dark energy is, that requires you to map very, very large fractions of the entire sky, and that is what Roman is uh, ideal to do. The telescope is set to launch by May 2027. Greg Hawney, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In education news, more than a year before the 2024 election, Vice President Kamala Harris visited NAU on Tuesday to engage young people. As Tori Gantz reports, her stop in the state was the ninth on a more than month-long college tour across America. Harris stopped in Flagstaff to speak with students and teachers on issues that disproportionately affect young people. 
Audience members asked Harris questions about issues like immigration, the Israel-Gaza war, education, and mineral extraction on indigenous land. Harris spoke about so-called fundamental and hard-fought freedoms. The freedom to have access to the ballot box, the freedom to love the person you love openly and with pride. Harris said young people had record voter turnout in the 2020 election and urged them to register to vote. Tori Gantz, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And now in Original Productions, we take a trip to see a conversation team as they work on preserving musical instruments. Here's the show co-host, Lauren Gilger. If you've ever wandered through the Musical Instrument Museum in North Phoenix, you might have found yourself standing in front of a massive window looking into a room that looks like a cross between a science lab and a music store. It's called the Conservation Lab, and it's where Rodrigo Correa Salas spends his days restoring historic instruments and sometimes rebuilding them. It is intricate and exact work that involves a vast array of knowledge of obscure instruments and hard-to-source materials like gut strings and rare African woods. I got a peek inside the world of instrument conservation recently with Correa Salas and MIM curator Rich Walter. And we began with a guitar a little unlike any I had ever seen before because it had piano keys embedded inside it. So let's start with, uh, this is a German piano key guitar. This is a 1810 it's a really interesting instrument because it has kind of a six keys to play the, the instrument as a guitar, but as a piano too. So wait, these, these keys that are separate from it, these go inside of it? Yes, let me put it inside. Yeah, let's see. It. That's amazing. I've never seen anything like that. What kind of restoration work have you done here? I work with the hammers of the system because... Uh, it was two two of them was broke, so I have to uh, redo the, the the entire system. Yeah. A piece like that would likely end up in our Germany display. It's a recent acquisition, and frankly, some of these items are really fragile. They come from all over the world, and so when they arrive, occasionally we'll discover that they need a little bit of help. They need some of these delicate parts mm-hmm. stabilized, repaired, and and before we want things to be on display. Uh, that's where Rodrigo steps in and assesses each instrument, but this will ultimately be a real highlight in, in our Europe gallery. So tell us a little bit about the acquisition process, because as you said, this is a, an international museum. There are instruments here from literally all over the world. Well, how do you find them? Well, we're, we're always looking, of course, and we have a number of contacts and relationships around the world. We work with private individuals. We work with other museums for loans collectors and and people who've devoted their lives to music. And so once we get to know them, fortunately, they they frequently let us know about some really special historical items that might be available for us here at MIM. And and then it's a, a process of figuring out how to get them safely here. And we have a registration department. We've got a lot of wonderful teams who all chip in, not only finding the instruments, but making sure they arrive here and then, of course, making sure they're handled appropriately uh, between restoration work and and conservation work and mount making and everything that happens here. So from discovering an item to acquiring it to getting it here to getting it ready for display, it really is a, a big 
team effort. It's quite a process. So your job is to get it ready for display. Um, What's this next instrument here? You have quite an intricate drawing here. This is beautiful of, of what you're about to do. Yes, this is a, a Indian sarinda. is 18th century uh, Indian wood. So in this case, I had to put uh, the resonator is a, a skin, and then the next I'm gonna do is I'm gonna make the the tuning pegs, and this is the sketch for the the tuning after uh, a lot of research with the curator. And then next part of the work is gonna be put the strings. Or are those? Those are God's strings, and then I'm gonna have to make the the, the bridge too. In these cases, because the instrument is so old, we cannot find part, so I have to make the part. So, in that process, I have to know about the the quality and density of the wood I'm gonna use. Mm-hmm. It's a, a lot of uh, information behind that. So it sounds like the sourcing of this, like strings, the specific kind of wood, the skin that you repaired here. How do you find these kinds of materials? Well, all around the world, it's about to know which type of um, animal they use for the skin and that kind of thing. So, It's a global collection, and so we're lucky to have a number of existing examples that we can study but then a lot of, of thought goes into finding the right plant fibers or natural skins or even the types of adhesives they may have used to do the original work in the local environments where these instruments are made. So different varieties of hardwoods and softwoods, you know, really trying to make sure that if the instruments need uh, an additional part or a replacement part, they can be true to to the original concept. And so, yeah, there's a you know, a collection of of skins and plant fibers and gut strings and steel strings really to accommodate a huge variety of projects that happen here in the lab. Did you say gut strings? Yeah, so (laughs) gut gut strings were really the ones um, used for a long, long time, so these natural materials. And so that's the other thing we find. People are so resourceful and they're using materials, whether it's bamboo, whether it's animal and marine types of skins, uh, plant fibers, all types of items, certainly the varieties of woods that grow around the world, people have figured out how to use those materials to their best musical properties and combine them in ways that are almost endless. And, And we're constantly discovering that creativity and that resourcefulness through hundreds of years of music. One of the things that's so interesting going through MIM and just as you're describing these instruments is like the the universal nature of them, right? Like there are stringed instruments and wind instruments and bells and of various kinds, like it, from every culture, it seems. Absolutely. You can find a flute that's made out of bamboo or made out of porcelain or made out of glass or made out of wood. And the principle is similar. It's a flute but the variety of ways people have have figured out how to make music with that general concept is just, it's amazing. It's amazing. I also want to talk to you, Rodrigo, just a little bit about everything that's in this place, because you've got shelves of books, you've got giant vacuum-looking things hanging from the ceiling, you've got a giant tool chest up here. Tell us a little bit about what you work with. So basically, we try to have a lot of uh, different uh, materials, there's a little case in here. Yeah. We have a piece of wood of a Native American uh, tree. We have a little bit of the uh, African wood. We have different type of all kind of uh, bones, camel bone, 
cowbone, I mean, you name it. So every every little piece is going to be part of the uh, uh, restoration of, of an instrument. So it's great to have all kind of uh, different uh, type of uh, materials. A box full of bones and wood. <laughs> oh, wow. Is this all skins? Yeah, different type of leathers and consistencies and different uh, types and uh, thickness, colors. So you can name it from uh, fish to different type of animals. So it's great to have those, a lot of uh, things to play with. <laughs> this is like a giant tool chest, yeah. <laughs> you have to tell me, Rodrigo, a little bit about your background and how you got into this because it's so niche and, and it takes such a giant array of knowledge, it sounds like, to address as many instruments. Yes, I, well, everything started when I was <laughs> I really young and started to disassemble and assemble everything <laughs> around me. And I love to do that. And then I started to uh, study music. I made a degree in music education and, and cello, violoncello. And then I finished my degree in a violin maker in Indiana University. A violin maker, wow. Uh -huh. And then after four years, I started my business, my violin shop in Puerto Rico. And then I started to travel around and... Uh, work with different orchestras and different companies, learning about all kind of uh, instrument, different families, you know, percussion, winds, strings, and everything. So after a couple of decades, the meme called me, and then I'm here. <laughs> so it sounds like each instrument that they bring in for you from wherever in the world, however old it may be, it's like a, like a little mystery. Like you kind of have to piece things together, figure out how it came to be and what it needs to be repaired. Correct. This is the fun part of the thing. So I love to do that is uh, figure out how to do it and with what type of uh, different uh, materials. Of course, I have the information from... Uh, uh, really good information from the, the curators and uh, research and put everything together this is great it's a, it's a great uh, honor to be part of the history of the instrument so I want to end with you then just with a little bit about why this is so important within the museum right like this is an integral part it sounds like of what you do here and also you know you've left it open like there's a big giant window in the front so people can kind of have a peek in to what's going on in this room why well, it's really important for people to understand that this is an active process at the museum, that the care that's you know applied to these instruments is an active and thoughtful process. So we're proud to have it on display on the one hand. And in addition to technical skill, there is a philosophy, there is an understanding that the, these instruments, these materials, and some of the age that many of them have, that is part of the history. So it's one thing to have it together and intact, but it's also important for these instruments to retain their sense of history. And so there are fine lines between cleaning something and sometimes erasing its sense of history or kind of losing some of the narrative that it tells so that what guests are ultimately seeing in the museum are instruments that are in their most flattering light and showing what their original makers or their their genuine performers would most like for people to see. Thank you both so much for showing me around. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And finally, in Fronteras news. Migrant families separated under the Trump administration's zero-tolerance policy will receive support from the U.S. government under a new settlement between the Biden administration and the ACLU. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick has more. 
Thousands of children were separated from their parents when Zero Tolerance made crossing the border without permission a criminal offense in 2018. The new agreement will help fund things like reunification efforts, medical bills, and housing for reunited families in the U.S. Parents also have access to work permits and legal services, and they can apply for asylum. The ACLU's Legal Learned. Immigration often results in families being separated indirectly as collateral effects. Those are difficult issues but they are not of the same nature as the deliberate, cruel, prolonged separations of zero tolerance. The deal also bars the U.S. government from reenacting the zero tolerance policy for the next eight years. The ACLU estimates up to 1,000 children are still separated. Alisa Resnick, KJZ News, Tucson. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vianne, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.